Welcome to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. I'm Peter Bregman, your host and CEO of Bregman Partners. This podcast is part of my mission to help you get massive traction on the things that matter most. We have with us today an interesting guest, a different kind of guest. I, I've been more interested recently in bringing people who have real life experiences with some of the challenges that we face as leaders. And, uh, and our next guest is one of those people. His name is Alexis Stenforce. He was a trader for 15 years. He um, then got involved in a uh, series of trades that ended up losing Merrill Lynch $456 million. He was labeled a rogue trader. Uh, this was, uh, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago. You may have heard about him or read about him in, in the newspaper. He then uh, did a PhD. He's now an academic. Uh, that's his profession. But he has an unusual past and has had a lot of time to kind of think about this. And what we're going to talk with Alexis about is how you um, how you make a mistake like that and and how you follow a certain path that you later see that you later see to regret and and how you can get caught up in something that you never would have imagined doing and yet you're responsible for it and then how you come back from that and the emotional courage that it takes to show up the next day and the next day and the next year and a decade later uh, with colleagues with uh, you know who who know that you have a label that that you may not uh, consider fits you so well anymore. So we're going to discuss all of this. We're fortunate enough to have Alexis with us today. Alexis, thank you for agreeing to come on the show and thank you for coming to the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you. So Alexis, let's start just informing people. Give us you know a brief rendition of what happened. Uh, the, this was in February 2009, uh, just before, or just after Bank of America had bought Merrill Lynch. I mismarked my trading books and went on holiday and realized basically immediately after the weekend that this was very serious, what I had done. So I called my boss and said, I books, my trading books, books are mismarked. And what does that mean? Just explain for people who may not know, what does it mean to mismark your trading they were books? Overvalued. They were overvalued by, in my opinion, $100 million. So you had made some trades and you, and you wrote down they're worth $100 million more than they were actually worth. Exactly. Exactly. And I called my boss and, and admitted to this, uh, what I had done. And uh, he said to me, well, it's very serious. This could go all the way up to the financial regulator. And I said, sorry, and I apologized. And then he said, enjoy the holiday. Uh, see you in two weeks. And I, at that moment, I realized that this is, this is something very, very serious. Uh, not only the amount, the, two, the 100 million, but I realized that I would never go back to banking again. So I was invest investigated. I, I flew back. I contacted a lawyer. And... Uh, then only a few days after I came back to London, uh, the New York Times called up and, and asked, is, if, is, is this true, this rumor that you have, have mismarked your books? Because everything was still going on inside the bank. And uh, 
I replied that this is a misunderstanding because to me the whole scenario was much more complicated than simply you mismark or you don't mismark. The whole scenario was very complicated. So I went again to speak to my lawyer and the next day it was a big article in the New York Times connecting me with the takeover of uh, Merrill Lynch by Bank of America linked to a, a, a pretty big bonus scandal in, uh, in the US that you might have heard about. And really from then on it started. So I got labeled a road trader. This, uh, this was published in a number of newspapers in TV. And in the end, the bank lost $456 million. How did the $100 million go to $456? I don't know. <laughs> but it I, did. No, it's, it's, in reality, it, it's, it's fairly... This was in the middle of the crisis, and my trading books were enormous. Right. So closing a trading book uh, rapidly in an illiquid market that you can't trade, it is going to cost a lot of money. So right. uh, I'm, not, I'm, I'm shocked by a large amount myself, but I'm not totally surprised. Right, because you had to close out the whole book, and in order to do that, you had to sell things that yes. had lost. Right. Yes, um, bring us, if you would, Alexis, to the moment that you made the decision, if you can, the moment you made the decision, I'm going to mark up my books a hundred million more than they should be because we are all faced. The reality is we're all faced with these kinds of decisions and very rarely are they as big as your decision. You know, very, it's unusual that you're, you're dealing with a hundred million dollar a choice, but we might be dealing with much smaller choices, and they could be anything as small as you know taking something from the office closet uh, to you know all the way up to a hundred million dollar mismarked on a trade, and and there's you know the that doesn't mean you're a bad person or we're bad people, but it means we make a poor decision in the moment. And what I'm curious about is what allowed you, what enabled you, what. What brought you to make that decision that ultimately we would both agree is a poor decision? I think I've asked myself that for seven and a half years as well. And you know, I've been asked this question, when did it start? Well, it, it was about six weeks before. So it took, it took about six weeks. But you know, I was a trader for 15 years. And, and the, the moment I can't recall, and it started a lot earlier, the whole feeling that I, got, I was so detached from reality in terms of how much risk I took. Uh, it was phenomenal. And I, I was in, in bad physical shape. Uh, mentally, I was a wreck. Uh, everything in my life, sort of work-wise, was, was going downhill. So I, I, I wish I could, could give an easy answer and say, I did this to make money. That wasn't the case because... This was during the early parts of 2009, and there was no incentive for me to, to, to try to show that I had made money because it was a whole year ahead. It didn't make any sense. But I, the main reason was that I was desperate to go away, to get out of the whole scenario of trading uh, that, in my opinion, had become very ugly. And I should have acted differently you know, of course, I should have told my boss, I should have told everybody, I should have informed, I should have done something else. But instead, I sort of just continued until I had a chance to, to go away and realize that, hang on a minute, this is completely, completely wrong. 
was, was it a, a a big decision of saying, okay, I'm going to mismark my books by a hundred million, or were they a million little small decisions that you know were you mismarking your books just a little bit? Was it a were, were you walking down a path that you didn't realize how far you would go uh, until you had gotten there, or or was it sort of this one major? No, sort of- it's definitely a million or a billion tiny tiny decisions during this period, but I think. Most people would say 100 million is, is a lot of money. I think so too. But the, the odd thing is, at that moment in time, in early 2009, for me, in the world that I was working in, <clears throat> 100 million wasn't a lot. It was numbers on a spreadsheet. For me, for me, after I had spent 15 years in this market, trading trillions or billions, 100 million wasn't that much. That is the, the, the absurd thing. Of everything, I had completely lost track of what is a hundred million, what is a billion. It doesn't really matter, and I think that was the the uh, that is in a way the scary thing that I had completely lost lost touch with reality during this period. So you you were trading in billions of dollars. Yes, yes, yes. And so in the in from a perspective of that, the the you know mismark didn't seem like such a big deal in that moment. It felt like you, you knew that it was wrong, but it didn't feel like a catastrophe wrong. And it probably felt like something you could recover from. Yeah, yes, yeah. I mean, and, and the target, or the, 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 uh, what I was supposed to, to, to make as revenues during this year was in, in the hundreds of millions of dollars as well. But the amounts that I traded every day in the foreign exchange and the derivatives markets, the, the notional amounts were in, in many, many, many billions per day. So, were you worried about what you were going to make for the year? Not at that time, really, not really worried, but I felt that it was impossible. Uh, it was impossible because there was no market. As if you go back after Lehman Brothers or the, the months afterwards, the, the, the banks were in bad shape. Uh, very, very few banks wanted to, to lend to each other or trade with each other. Uh, most people were exhausted. I mean, not only normal people, but also traders in the dealing room were exhausted. And it was sort of the, the atmosphere was not nice. And uh, I, I didn't have time to worry. It was, the market was too busy. It was too volatile. Uh, there wasn't really a time to say, well, what will I do in a year's time or in six months' time? You know, it was more a minute or a second. Uh, you had a, a second or a minute to reflect and I think the moment when I had, when I wasn't able to go away, was when I had one or two days to reflect. And that's what shifted your perspective. You were away from work. You had a couple of days to reflect, and and yeah. and bring yeah. me to that moment—the moment where you sort of come to this realization that you probably made a very, very big mistake. Yeah, I was in in, in India uh, in a tent. I remember. Uh, our kids were six and eight at the time, and I. Isn't that where all great realizations should happen in India in a tent? <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe it was India. I hadn't been to India before. I'd been to Asia many times, but never to India. And I think maybe it was that. And I, I said to my wife that if I call my boss now, it's go- it's going to be the end of my uh, banking career because I hadn't told her. You know, it was. It, I knew it. Uh, and she said, 
just it's the right thing to do. I explained to her this is this is what I've done, and and if I tell my boss, this is the end of my career. And she said it's uh, it's the right thing to do. So up until that moment, you were completely alone in this, meaning you you were. You, you had no confidant around it. You had no support system around the challenges that you were facing around trading or anything. Mm, no, that, that's that's right. That's right. I mean, I, I didn't I didn't talk about this with other people. You know, right. neither my friends nor my family nor my my, my colleagues. Yeah. Right. Um, was that phone call a difficult phone call to make? It, it, yes, uh, yes, and no. I think that's, that's, in a way, for me, it, it was a very important phone call. It, it was the most inf- important phone call in my life. But the non, you know, when, I, when I hang up and, and I knew that this is, I will never, ever go back again, uh, it also felt very clear somehow. Somehow that this, even though I had done something extremely terrible and I knew that things could get awful, I didn't know how awful, but I knew it was downhill. It somehow felt that uh, this is the right thing to do, and I feel okay. And I think this is something that, that very few people that I've spoken to understand. They, they, they normally think that you must have felt awful afterwards. No, I felt awful up until that moment. Mm-hmm. Immediately when I spoke to my boss and I sort of I said, this is what I've done, this is a mistake, this is... I apologize, this is wrong. I felt okay. Naturally, I have, I have had guilt since then for seven and a half years. But in terms of uh, sort of f- feeling uneasy about it, no. Well, it makes sense. I mean, the unease has so much to do with the secret and also um, the possibility of what might happen. And once you come out with that, and with the support of your wife, which feels huge, that there's a certain um, surrender, it seems like, to whatever might happen. There's, there's, there's nothing else you could be doing. You've made the decisions. You've made the final decision. And at this point, it seems like, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but as I'm looking at you and I'm listening to you, <laughs> it, it seems like at that point, you know, you've done everything that you can do and, and you've finally done the right thing. And you can't control anything else that happens. Am I am I reflecting this back correctly? Uh, that's right. I mean, I can't. Con- it, was, it was impossible to control, say, the media storm afterwards. I couldn't control that. I couldn't control how 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 the bank investigated me. Right. I couldn't control what they what kind of information they gave to the regulator. I couldn't control my neighbors what they thought about me. Right. But. I could control exactly myself. I mean, I knew exactly what I'd done, and I knew exactly how much guilt I felt. But, you know, I couldn't do anything more than that. There's something that feels very important, actually, about being in a tent in India at this point. And and it seems like when you're in the midst of the place, the environment, the context, your life, your apartment, the money you were spending, whatever, that it's very hard in that moment to say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make an about face. I'm going to turn around. I'm going to contradict all of this stuff. I'm going to you know, give myself up. When you're in a tent in India and that stuff is farther away, it seems like you're in a completely different environment and context. And from that place, it becomes easier to say, that thing that was happening back in London, I need to change that. 
again, I'm, 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 I'm riffing off of this, but I'm curious about whether that resonates. And I think that is exactly it. And I, 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 it has been very difficult to explain to, to, to say my friends and my ex-colleagues. It's, it's exactly that, that way. For me, I, I turned the sheet that day. Uh, and for me, I could sort of think about myself as a third person. That I was this person that had done this uh, or, or worked in a dealing room on a trading floor for 15 years. Uh, that was one part of me. And that was still myself. But whatever I had done up until that moment was I could see, see myself from, from the outside. And also see how, how, how could I do this? Well, I have to find out how do other people see me? Well, that is probably how I should see myself as well, in a way. I can learn from that. Uh, so it, it was a long process, of course, and it, I'm still working on it. You know, how, how, do I, how do I look back on that period? It's powerful support to take regular vacations, <laughs> right? I mean, like to really get perspective or to not, you know, for people I know who are observant, uh, you know, Jews that are observant of the Sabbath and they really completely stop working on Saturday or – you know, people who regularly take retreats and they go away for some period uh, to to create space between your daily life and and yourself, to create space between who you are as a person and everything that you're doing and the environment that you're in feels like a critical lesson of this. Yes, yes. And I think it's, but it's also linked to sort of my, the more I sort of discuss it, I also spent two years with a, with a, psychotherapists discussing these things and, and I think one, one lesson or one thought that I had was also it was very linked to, to previous experience previously uh, I had asked for a holiday when, my, when our first daughter was born I worked for a different bank and, and my boss said you can't go uh, because we had to set the training budget so you can't go uh, to the hospital when your, your, your wife gives birth and I ignored him. I just said, forget that. I'm going to do exactly how I feel. I did that and everything went fine with the family. However, my relationship with my boss deteriorated. Then I had a new boss, new bank, and, and my, my father was very ill. He was dying. And I asked, can I go back and see my, my dying father? And he said, no, who is going to look after your trading book? And in this case, perhaps because of the previous experience, I... I, I obeyed, so I stayed. I, I didn't go home. And my father passed away. Mm. Uh, so after that moment, of course, I will never sort of forgive my, my boss because, and of course, I will not forgive myself. Why, didn't, why did I actually do this? So the whole idea about, you know, do you have to follow the orders of your boss uh, all the time? I think that is also very important. Uh, I think I, I made a the right decision the first time, the wrong decision the, the second time. In this case, I think I made the right decision uh, the third time. Uh, it wasn't the right decision for the bank as a whole. I didn't, you know, for many reasons it was the wrong decision. Uh, I should have told somebody earlier, but it also depends very much on who you trust. Uh, that is key. Who do you trust in, in your organization? Right, and, and also a lesson for those of us who are, who are bosses to be trustworthy. Yes. Right. Yes. Um, let's come to present day because you're still faced with this label of rogue trader. You still have the history of, of um, 
kind of what you did and and yet you have new relationships to build and you're in a new profession and here I am talking to you about this right mm-hmm. so it doesn't just go away and and I'm I'm curious about the courage that that it takes to show up, you know, after something like that, either directly after it or even in the crisis, but after the crisis, uh, to 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 ha- to have that label, and you have your colleagues, and you have your friends, and I'm I'm curious about um, what you do to support yourself, uh, not financially, but as a person in in the face of a label that I'm sure does not go away, and a new life that you're trying to build. Mm-hmm. But I think, for personally, because I, I love finance and economics, it's something that I always love to do. So uh, when I started to do my PhD after the, the road trading scandal, it was sort of going back to what I really loved, i.e. academia, economics, finance. Uh, it was just a different way of looking at similar things. So... I'm still, in a way, looking at exactly the same things as I did when I was a trader. It's just that my perspective is very, very different. Rather than trading, which is the most short-term thinking you can think of, academia is the other extreme, where you can reflect. You have time to think. You you, you form new relationships. But I'm sort of still involved, in that sense, in the same area, even though can you compare a trader with an academic – Perhaps not, but because of the research that I do, because of the courses that I teach, I can still relate back. And I think I'm constantly reminded of this, uh, this episode. I haven't become a gardener, for instance. I could have become something completely different and completely tried to forget everything. But because I still work with similar things, I, I have to, I think about this every day. And I think it's just been a matter of, of every day being a little bit more comfortable in talking about it with people and not be upset when I'm called a road trader or when I look at people and, and they, I can see that they have read about me, but they don't want to reveal that they actually know this about me or they looked me up on Google, etc. You know, these, these sort of things. And I, I, it's, it's difficult. I don't know if you can teach that to somebody. It's just that you you know that you are known for something really bad. And how do you, how do you then confront people? Uh, well, you, you can't bring it up every single time. But sometimes you have to. And then you have to be open about it. And then normally it's fine. If people hear the honest, long story, then most people are fine with it. And do you find yourself... Uh, you know, in, in relationship with people, in conversation with people... Uh, do you find yourself wondering, like, what are they thinking? Or when you hear what they're thinking, do you feel, um, you know, that you have to explain? Or, you know, how uh, you, you, you're walking around the world with a story over your head. And, yep. and you can't live your life entirely like that all the time. So I'm wondering how, what you do for yourself physically, emotionally, psychologically to buffer yourself from the reputation that you acquired earlier on in your career. Well, I have tried different methods. And the first thing I did was not to speak to media for seven years. Okay? Uh, I thought, well, if I say something, the media will, will, will change the story 
and it will, will, will look different. So I decided that and I changed that this spring. I gave my first interview ever. Now, during this time, I mean, I, I got so many different reactions. I mean, I, I've been, uh, somebody told me I will put a bullet through your head. I mean, uh, some are very, very aggressive. And how do you deal with that? Well, just be nice to people. I think that's the, the, the lesson I have. Uh, it, it's very, very difficult because I can see quite often that they know who I am and they expect me quite often because of this scandal uh, and because it's been in the media, many people think that this is something, the story is owned by everybody. So I have somehow an obligation to tell everything uh, that I don't have a private life. And I think here is, is I've learned to, do, to handle that in a better way, to, to give something always if somebody asks, but not give everything because I can't, I'm not, I'm not an ocean where everybody can say, well, you can, if you want to learn about road trading, whether it's good or bad, you just go and ask Alexis. Uh, it, it hurts a lot because I do have a normal life as well. I mean, it's, it was a very short period of my life and I can't let that take over everything. It's a very healthy and important attitude for all of us to learn from. Yeah. Um, f final words, uh, if you would, you know, any advice you have for people, right? Most of us aren't trading, you know, in the billions or trillions that you were trading in. But, but again, most of us have done things in our lives that we regret. Most of us, you know, however small, however large, have done things that, you know, maybe nobody knows about, maybe some people know about, but that we we wish we had done differently. Any advice you have about about moving on? You've been speaking a little bit about that now already, but any advice you have for people to um, share the sort of all of the work you've done over the last seven to eight years that could be helpful to listeners? Mm -hmm. I think what, one, one aspect about the, sort of the, the moral aspect of, of, of what I have done or the immoral aspect is is to... To, to think about or, or remember there is a difference between what is uh, morally right in society, what is morally right in a company, uh, what is legally right, uh, and what is your own moral. I think you need to, or all of us should really think about, carefully about that because if you work in a large organization, it doesn't have to be a financial institution or in a dealing room you're still faced with, with, with decisions quite often that you think, well, uh, the company wants to do this or my boss wants me to do that. And then you think, well, is this really the right thing to do? Uh, I know it's legal maybe, uh, but maybe it is morally wrong. And here I think we need to think more often about this like, and to, to sort of stand up and say, don't be afraid of saying, uh, hang on a minute. Yes, I can see that this makes sense from a company's perspective or that this is still legal. Uh, however, it is the wrong thing to do. And, and, and this is not only for leaders, this is also for employees. It's, it's very easy just to follow rules and uh, conventions, norms, and not and sort of get carried away with it and, and not uh, question them. And I think that that is something that we all we all responsible for. Thank you, Alexis Stenfors, 
uh, you have been awesome to share this with us and, and to, um, you know, to, to open up your story because I know that it's, it's not always pleasant. And, and, and before our interview, when, when I said, you know, how should I, how should I, um, introduce you? You, you said something that actually is sticking with me now, which is, well, look, we just have to say the truth. You know, this is, I was labeled a rogue trader. And, and I think that's, um, such a testament to maybe where you were seven or eight years ago and where you are now. And, and the advice that you just shared, which is, you know, you show up, you show up fully, you, you tell the truth and, uh, and you live with consequences. And so I, I appreciate hearing that from you. Thank you so much for being on the Bregman Leadership Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode of the Bregman Leadership Podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. For more information about the Bregman Leadership Intensive, as well as access to my articles, videos, and podcasts, visit peterbregman.com. Thank you to Claire Marshall for producing this episode and to Brian Wood, who created our music. Thanks for listening and stay tuned for the next great conversation.